0: If we open a quarrel between past and present, we shall find that we have lost the future. Is a quote from British statesman, army officer and writer, Sir Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the Second World War. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, a student of modern history who wrote his thesis on Sir Winston Churchill and, like him, is now a fellow author. Our guest today is Brian Hartzer. Chairman and co-founder of New Specialty Lender, 2B. He's also chairman of ASX-listed salary-advanced business, BeforePay, AI-based HR technology startup, Rejig, and the Australian Museum Foundation. He previously served as Managing Director and CEO of Westpac Banking Corporation, and prior to that, spent 15 years in senior executive roles at major banks in Australia and the UK. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United States, Italy and Scotland, a big hello I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blendon Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, Brian shares with us his five C's of leadership engagement, insights into the pressure moments of testing times, his thoughts on today's economic landscape, and some personal reflections. So sit back and enjoy, to dare and endure. Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg. It's great to be here. You've recently written a book on leadership and engagement. I have, I have. What's it all about? Well, this challenge that I had when I – I'm not a trained leader. I don't have an MBA, never done any real formal leadership training, um, and found myself in charge of a business with a thousand people and thought, I need to figure this out. And one of the thoughts that I came across in my reading and preparing for that was the importance of getting people emotionally engaged in their work. And we used to have these engagement scores that would come back. The HR team would come to you and say, right, this year your engagement score has gone up by three percentage points. And within that, communications is down by two, but yep. pay and performance is up for you know whatever. Yep. And after one of these sessions, I said to the HR team, well, that's great, but what do I personally need to do? And I got crickets. They really? just looked at me and they said, well, you need a communication program and you need this and that. And I said, yeah, yeah, but what do I need to do? Yep. And they couldn't tell me. And that bugged me. And so then over the course of the rest of my career, it was just one of these things that bugged me. And I started really paying attention to individual leaders who seemed to be getting high engagement Mm -hmm. and asking them or studying them and and reading whatever I could about other companies and other leaders and saying, what exactly are they doing? And over the course of a number of years, I started to pick some things up, apply them, found some things work, some things didn't. And eventually, engagement scores were going really high in my business. And one of my colleagues said to me, do you mind coming and talking to my team about what you guys are doing? Okay. And so I sat down with a piece of paper, made a huge list of all the things we were doing. And then being a good ex-management consultant, you can't have a list with more than five things. That's right. And so I said, well, okay, that's kind of like that. And that's kind of like that. And I can, and lo and behold, I can make them all start with C and so i Good thought so, yeah you can't uh, you can't stop it once it's embedded <laughs> in you and so i went along and had this chat and i said look engagement really boils down to five things and here's what they are and people found that really helpful and so i started running a, essentially a powerpoint presentation to all the managers in my businesses mm-hmm. here's what i think you need to do consistently to build and sustain engagement okay uh, people found it really helpful they applied it engagement scores went up performance went up and so i one of my communications advisors one day said, you know, you really ought to put this in a book. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's very funny. I'm, I'm busy. And so over the years, it became a joke that I would say to people, well, if I ever get fired, I'll write the book. And then lo and behold, <laughs> I had time on my hands. So I wrote the book. Have I seen it all before, Brian? Have I seen
0: all these five Cs before? So
1: yes, individually. I couldn't find any. I did a lot. I found every book I could find on engagement. There were a lot of theoretical books written by academics and so on, there was nothing I could find that said, okay, you're a leader. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do on Monday. Here's what you need to do through the year. Here are the specific things that you'll find are are helpful. And so that was how I decided to focus the book. I call it, it's the subtitle is it's a practical guide to building engagement. And it's designed for someone who's either trying to figure it out, or maybe you're already a senior leader and you're trying to say, well, how do I organize my time in a way that I can embed, building engagement and sustaining it.
0: But what actually is engagement too? That's a really interesting one. There's a lot of talking, yeah, a lot of output, but what to you is actually engagement and how do you measure engagement?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the measurement is done typically through these standard surveys that a number of different people use and there are pros and cons of any survey and you got to take it all with a grain of salt. Yep. In my mind, what it really boils down to is are people willing to make an emotional commitment, yep. make an extra effort to their work that, collectively over time means that organization is more likely to outperform. Now, and I should say, caveat, I'm not saying engagement is all that matters in leadership. There's lots of other aspects of leadership. But I do believe that organizations that do really well over time are ones that can get people feeling emotionally connected to the work of the organization and wanting to be there and wanting to work hard and wanting to do well, wanting to support each other. Um, and so, I, I do think it's an important element of, of leadership. Well, we've got a lot of people listening to this podcast, Brian,
0: who are building their careers or are actually in that position as CEOs, particularly coming out of COVID, reflecting on a number of things and motivation, purpose, et cetera. Um, what are they then, Brian? What should we be considering? Don't want to sell the book yet, but <laughs> <That's> <laughs> take okay, it to take
1: I'll it. sell away, please. I describe it as the five Cs, and I'll just run through them real quickly if you like. Yeah, sure. So, the first C is care, uh, and I should say that each of these sounds obvious but has a subtlety. So care is about demonstrating that you care for people as individual human beings, not as a collective generic state of mind. And what that means is that care is an action verb. So it's what steps do you take to make people believe that you care about their success on their own terms, not just this generic, you know, good news. We're giving everybody Friday off. Well, okay. So at a generic level, fine, but how do you make each individual person feel like they matter and that you want to see them be successful? Mm -hmm. By the way, that doesn't mean that you just have to be nice to them. It doesn't mean you don't give them hard feedback um, because actually you're not caring about people if you're not helping them deal with issues they need to deal with. But you have to lay this groundwork where people think, right, my boss actually cares about me as a person. So that's the first one. Uh, Second one is context. And that's really about the why. Why does yep. the organization exist? And very importantly, why does what I do all day link to that broader purpose? And that purpose should be something more than creating shareholder value. Yep. Because even investment bankers, I think in your you suppose, really yeah. deep down, yep. they don't wake up in the morning and go, I'm gonna go create some shareholder value. Correct. You know, right? So people wanna feel like what they're doing has meaning. Yep. And the the trick on this one is that senior people often that purpose is really obvious, but for more junior people that purpose may be obscure uh, because they come in and they they're presented with a a set of tasks they have to do all day and it's not obvious how that is contributing to some customer outcome or some broader societal good and so leaders have to keep reinforcing that link Mm -hmm. and that sense of purpose and also give people context when they're making decisions particularly in tough times how do you make decisions without people thinking oh that all that corporate purpose stuff was just bs because now they're choosing to do this over here. So people wanna see an explanation about how the decisions that management make link to that broader purpose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Third C is clarity, and clarity has three aspects to it. One is role clarity, second is goal clarity, Mm -hmm. and the third is behavioral clarity. And so role clarity is what it sounds like. Do people know what their job is? Do you know why that job exists? Might sound really obvious, but often, Managers have written a role description that got used when they hired a headhunter to yes. to go bring someone in, yeah, which is the same one everyone uses. And then it's never looked at again. Yes. And so people, it sounds really yeah. obvious, but often why things go wrong in organizations, people aren't actually sure what their job is, and they spend time on things that aren't really what the job is about. Maybe they don't have clarity on. What decision-making rights they have, maybe they don't know how they're meant to resolve conflict, maybe they don't know who they're meant to work with in the organization, all those sort of things. So taking the time to make that clear. Goal clarity is about making it so obvious as to what good looks like and what great looks like in a given period that someone can do their own review. I have this thing I when I do these talks on this subject, I often ask people how many of you enjoy the annual review process? And there's inevitably a huge laugh, right? Zero. Yeah, exactly. exactly right. And well I should already know with how they're going to be reviewed But, to but your point, the aren't reason they? for that is that people haven't spent enough time at the start of the period yeah. saying, All right, here's what a good performance would look like. And that's not a low bar. That's like with your skills yep. and with the challenges that we face, here's what I think you should be able to achieve. Here are the the three or four key things for you to achieve this period that would represent good performance.
0: And you're seeing this right at the top as,
1: as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Consistent? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Mm. I mean, there's lots of mistakes people make. Too many measures. I've seen KPI documents yep. with 25 pages in them. Well, you know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, Take the box. Right? Uh, or people spend all this time trying to make sure that the, the goal is as low as possible so that... They won't be criticized at the end of the year, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's another piece of this, which I've found to be really helpful when you're trying to drive high performance. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea of a stretch goal or what what does great performance look like? And the little trick that I've learned is that if you involve people in setting that stretching goal, basically get them to set it, Mm -hmm. then it's incredibly powerful for two reasons. One is it forces them to think creatively. About their work and they come up with new solutions yep. that they wouldn't otherwise come up with yeah and secondly there's an emotional satisfaction when they achieve it that builds pride and builds engagement yep. versus if I just say to you well great you delivered a hundred units of sales this year and next year I want you to 150 and you think oh goodness yep. you know that's ridiculous yep. it's it's demotivating but if I say to you right you did a hundred this year that's fantastic now what goal if you achieved it next year would make you incredibly proud, mm. and you go, well, you know what? If I could do 150, I mean, and then you think, oh gosh, that'd be scary. I don't know how I'm going to do that. And you go, right, that's that's the goal because you said it. Because deep down, that's the thing that gets you excited, and you then tap into this subconscious creativity mm-hmm. to try and go solve that. Brian, just a big hairy goals. Yeah, it's the air, same do, same basic idea. Do they work? I think they do if people are involved in setting them or see a logic to them. If it's just some ridiculously macho boss who sets some ridiculous goal then people feel that this unrealistic thing is imposed on them, yep. then I don't think it necessarily helps. Yep. But I do think there is real power in constraints I, or, or setting something that – a goal that people don't quite know how they're going to achieve. I think that's actually important to drive creativity and new solutions and, and high performance. You're shifting a culture in doing this. That's absolutely, that's part of the goal. And you're releasing a lot of energy and a lot of thought. Yeah. So that gets us to the next, um, the releasing energy takes us to the next C, which is, oh, I I skipped one thing, sorry, um, in clarity, behavior clarity. Yep. And that's, uh, back to the culture point, all companies have a statement of values. In my mind, values translate into expected behaviors, what's okay, what's not okay. And you need to demonstrate that you mean it. And so people need to be very clear on what behavior is okay and what's not okay and they need to see that there's consequences when that doesn't happen otherwise that's tremendously undermining to engagement and culture yep so fourth c clearing the way and this is your job as the boss is it yeah i i think it is I, i think it's and it's really about taking an interest in what's getting in the way of people's success So it's asking the question what's getting in the way and recognizing that things getting in the way are not necessarily physical barriers. It might be about tools and resources, but it can also be about uh, lack of knowledge, of understanding, of training. It can be emotional hang-ups. It can be political barriers. And if the boss doesn't take a level of interest both in asking and going and looking for themselves at what's going on, then you're actually doing people a disservice because you're forcing them to spin their wheels unnecessarily. Um, One of the subtleties I like to point out when talking about this is I think that the political correctness around empowerment and delegation is actually overdone.
0: What? Don't you think authentic leadership exists? (laughs) Every second sentence now, I'm an authentic leader. And I think if you're going to say that, are you really authentic leader?
1: Yeah. Well, I just think it's become such a matter of of an article of faith that you have to delegate, you have to empower people. Well, of course you do. Where was it propagated from? I think it's management theory, right? Probably you went back 50 years ago, people were – it was a much more mechanical form of management, and eventually people said, I don't need to be told how to do every aspect of my job, and so people started saying, well, let's empower people with goals. Yeah. All good, but what people forget is that if you don't actually dive into the detail occasionally, particularly on things where there's a great opportunity or a great danger for the organization, then you're condemning people to spinning their wheels. For example, you might have given someone a goal, but to achieve that goal, they need to work with a part of the organization that's been given a different goal. Your person can't solve that. You can solve that because you go and talk to their boss and say, Hey, how do we, how do we resolve this? But if you don't actually ask, a lot of people will come to work and just go, Well, those are the constraints I've been given and you know, I'm just going to do it. Um, and they get conditioned, particularly in large organizations, not to use their initiative to go up the chain and say, hey, you got to help me sort this out. And so I just think a practical matter, if people see the boss taking an interest in solving problems for them, doesn't mean that they delegate all the problems up. But if you take a real interest in it, people will feel, hey, you want me to be successful. You're helping me achieve these goals that that we set together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's really important for engagement. How do
0: you cascade that message down, Brian?
1: Let's go back to Westpac Days,
0: CEO very, very large organization. You've got your immediate reports. So that's is that who you're focusing on?
1: Um, well, I think that's when you're CEO, it's a, it's a great question. I think that one of the subtleties in a big organization is the willingness to dive into the detail from a very senior level from time to time. Okay. So I think you need to get out and about. You need to be out with the front line from time to time. You need to be in the back office seeing what people are dealing with. There needs to be an element of diving in and not just relying on a pyramid or a cascade. And and in doing that, you're also sending a message to your direct reports as to what you expect them to be doing. Yep. That it's not all about working through the hierarchy; it is from time to time getting out and, and finding out what's what's really going on. So you're testing your own cascade. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Fifth C is celebrate, and that's really about recognition. Um, and the subtlety on this one is that it's not just about the Ps of pay and performance and promotion it's actually about creating a culture of appreciation. Uh, and, and that culture of appreciation is about formal recognition, yes, but it's also about informal recognition. It's not just about the party at the end of the year, it's about the thank you in the moment. And very importantly, it's the formal, the informal, it's the peer recognition as well as the top-down uh, recognition. It's the individual and the team. But most importantly, it's about being creative in how you recognize people, so that you build emotional value in the recognition you're giving people. So you've worked your butt off over a month on some incredibly difficult project, and at yep. the end of it, someone hands you a, a piece of paper, or certificate, that says, "Good work. Here's your certificate, Employee of the Month." Yep. You go, okay, well, that's great. But if you can find a way to say, you know, I know that you missed out on this kids event you did because you were so committed to this thing and i know that had a huge personal sacrifice for you and as a consequence of that look at what's happened here and what i'd really like to do is i'd like to pay for you to take your kids to you know a weekend away yes as a as a genuine thank you for the yep. sacrifice that you made you know that sort of thing i'm not saying that's the only i'm just made up that example but mm-hmm. it's to show that it's about being creative and personalized and customized in a way that people really feel acknowledged for what they've done yep and you're creating a sense of, gosh, I, I really feel appreciated. And there's an emotional commitment that comes from that, that creates a positive spiral where people think, hey, I am really being recognized deeply for the value that I bring to the organization. I want to do more of this. Brian, but this is all very apt because right
0: at the moment, we've come out of COVID. I think productivity is down based on what the ASX 100, 200 chief execs are saying to us. They're, they're challenged. They're also saying the biggest struggle they've got is because our unemployment is so so tight, they can't get their people back three days a week. That's you know, that's pretty good
1: apparently, according to Australia. What's going wrong then? I really do think I think implicit in your question, I believe a lot of this challenge of retention and, and so forth and engagement is a failure of leadership. It's a failure of yeah. of leaders to emotionally engage people in the work that they're doing. Connecting them to their teammates, connecting them to the, the external work of the company so that people think, I want to be there.
0: So, why isn't it being addressed? Why aren't we seeing some bold leadership in this country saying, rather than sticking to the you know three days a week, why hasn't anybody taken the actual flip side to that and saying, no, I want these people back to work? Because so I do care about them. I'm mindful of their future. I don't want them suffering later on mentally. In fact, they'll probably do better back in the office or back at the work front. But we're not hearing that debate. Yeah. I don't know. And if I listened to what you just said about engagement, et cetera, would you have your people back?
1: I, I think more so than than they are, yes. I would okay. go harder on it. I do we think could. there's an element of short-term thinking in in that, that people, I think leaders are afraid. That if they if the, I think yeah. that's what it boils down to I think it's fear. But if that's what leadership. I, is that leadership then, bro? <laughs> that's a good, excellent question. <laughs> I, I yeah well, what I do, you do think. Know? What do you what do you reckon? I, I think it's not what leadership is about. I think you have to be courageous. You have to stand up for what you believe in. Yep. Um. Now I would caveat that by saying that different types of work, different organizations. Sure. I think the the work from home capability that what technology now allows us yep. to do, in many cases, is able to drive better productivity. Yep. But Not for every role, not for every organization. And there are absolutely downsides in terms of training young people, mentoring, and particularly creativity um, of people bouncing ideas off each each other. It's just harder to do on on Zoom. And I think from an engagement point of view, the social value that comes from being together as a team. So in my mind, I think you should have a significant level of mandatory physical attendance for Mm -hmm. for most organizations and then for certain roles maybe at different times you you let people work at home when they want to do specific types of work i think that's fine but i do think if you take a long-term view of things i think that there's a great advantage in being able to work in a hybrid way. Sure, no but I do that. think I do think that um, that people are probably being a bit afraid to to push harder. And I think if you are really clear about the underpinnings of why people should feel good about where you work and and why their their contribution does come from being present, yeah, then uh, then I think you should push harder. So you're a student of history. Yes. Okay. So you're at, it at Princeton. Yes. What did you cover? Uh, my degree was in modern British history. Okay. So who did you admire in leadership? So I wrote my senior thesis on Winston Churchill (laughs) Okay, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1920s. Okay, following his old man. Uh, Yeah, yeah, he did.
0: Okay. So you then looked at a lot of other leaders during this course when you're writing this book. Define leadership then.
1: Ooh. Um, Well, I think leadership starts with self-awareness and knowing what you're really about and who you are and what you want to achieve and what impact you want to have. Uh, There's a a famous line by one of the, the great... Leadership writers, I've forgotten who it was that said that becoming a leader is about becoming yourself and it's precisely that simple and that difficult. So I do think that, uh, and I talk about this in the book as well, that there is a really important part of leadership that is becoming clear on who you are, what you're about, why you're there, and both internal and external self-awareness. So internal self-awareness, why do I do what I do? Why do I react the way that I do to certain situations? External self-awareness: How do people respond to me, mm-hmm. and am I having the impact that I want to have? And how do I how do I manage that? That's to me the core of it is being really clear with yourself. And then when you are clear, it becomes a lot easier to engage people in a goal because they see that it, it's. I think it's infectious mm-hmm. if people really believe that that you are committed. I, the word passion is over used, I think, a bit. But yeah, if, so if you right. have a genuine commitment to something and a real feeling that you want to make an impact in, in some way, I think it's then a lot easier to get people to line up around that and to give them confidence and direction that this is something worth doing and this is a an approach that, that we can be successful and that you can be part of that and get satisfaction out of that. So when did you decide you're going to be a leader? Ooh, um, well, I was a bit of an accidental leader in a way. My first leadership responsibility was running an uh, an Italian gelateria in Stamford, Connecticut, one summer during my university years, and that did not go well. No. Uh, now the highlight of it was one of the women I'd hired throwing her apron at my feet and screaming, "You're a terrible manager!" and storming out. So I kind of concluded that that was. I was probably not going to be a people leader. (laughs) That was not my gig, which is part of why I went into management consulting, where the value system is all about being the smart guy in the corner, really, Mm -hmm. Um, very much an individual sport, really. And then I had this experience where I was consulting to ANZ in Melbourne, and they offered me a job off the back of one of my assignments, and Mm -hmm. I said, no, thank you. And my client said, okay, well, how about we do another consulting assignment? And the assignment is you do the job. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll try that. And so I suddenly found myself running a department of about 30 people.
0: So you shifted from advising then, taking out Yeah, it was a
1: temporary thing. The idea yeah. was we had recommended establishing a function. Yep. And so the gig was oh, so you, you set it up, find your replacement. Yep. That's the project. All right. And so in the course of that, um, we were trying to do some things that hadn't been done before in the company. And there was a woman who worked for me who was running into challenges every week. Um, and so it felt like once a week she'd be in my office literally in tears because she'd run into some grumpy old banker who told her that she couldn't do what she wanted to do or that wouldn't be able to be looked at for 18 months or whatever it was. And yep. so I would metaphorically pick her up and dust her off, give her some tips and send her on her way. And one day she walked into my office with this enormous smile on her face and just said, I did it. We got this thing done. We got this project off, out the door. And... I, good feeling. It was this amazing feeling. I mean, it happened, this is 25 years ago now, yep. and I still remember where I was standing and where she was standing and the look on her face and how it made me feel. And I, I describe it as being like the Grinch had stole Christmas. You know, his heart grew five times that day, or whatever yep. the line is. Yep. That was kind of how I felt. Where okay. I suddenly, the satisfaction and the sustainable satisfaction I got from seeing somebody else be successful because I had helped them. Yep. Just was this just amazing experience and i thought well actually i do like this and this is what i want to do and so a couple of years more went by and and but in the end i was offered uh, a permanent job running this business which yep. combined both my technical knowledge it was the credit card business so i knew quite a lot about that and this big challenge of managing a thousand people and uh and i jumped at it and it was best decision i ever made smartest guy in the room what did you have to learn
0: about yourself Ha. <laughs> Because um, it's a big change, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I think it's, I had to learn to be generous. What does that and, mean? And interested in other people's success. Hard? Um, not not once I understood what the problem was. And the problem was my own insecurity. So I had been given a lot of incredible opportunities in my life. I was very lucky the parents I was born to, the town I grew up in, the s- yeah, the school that I went to, I got to go to this fantastic boarding school at a time when my father lost his job and it was a huge financial burden on the family. Mm-hmm. And then, amazingly, I got into Princeton, which was amazing because mm-hmm. it's really hard to get in, and it was there's a bit of luck involved. And so I I've always felt this tremendous sense of privilege that I had been. Really lucky, and, and so and I- and pressure as well, not let other people down. Um, yeah, but that—if I'm honest—that was probably internally created. My parents didn't really. You know, my father was very clever. He always used to say, "You know, you know, you can do better, don't you?" It wasn't. It right wasn't line. right. It was you know, it was that sort of thing. <laughs> so he he was very clever that way. So he embedded it in me rather than it wasn't like I'm going to be disappointed in you. It was always I'm very proud of you, but you know you can do better, don't you? And I'd go, yeah, and and so it was a, it was this sort of wanting to be worthy of the privileges i'd been given mm-hmm. i suppose is the way i would describe it and so that i put a lot of pressure on myself to do well because i felt like you know it's that old jfk thing about to those who much is given much is expected yep. that was kind of how i always Felt about things. Are you
0: moving at the pace of Churchill as well? He was <laughs> in, well, he was always worried that he's going to be like his old man, so he had to move at pace to get things done.
1: Yeah, that's true. Although he didn't, it's I mean, he didn't end up becoming prime minister until he was sixty nine, right? That's right. So, yeah, he's a fascinating kid that we could talk about. We could have another whole podcast just talk about Churchill. So you had insecurities, and you got a thousand people, and you're running the credit card business. Yeah, um, I was a bit insecure about it because I didn't have formal training as as a leader. And so, right, therefore- the no, the no MBA training. Yeah, or? exactly.
0: Do you really need that? You're a, well, you're a bright no, guy. N-
1: no, I, but I, I realize that now. But uh, but at the time, that felt like a gap. Yeah, right. Um, Interesting. And so, what I did early on in my management career was try to try to demonstrate to my boss that he'd made a good decision by appointing me. Is it McFarlane? Uh, no, this was Peter Hawkins, who yeah, was a okay. senior executive there. Yep. And Peter has been a fantastic- mentor to me over many years. And uh, and so I really, you know, I thought he took a huge risk by appointing me because yeah. I'd never managed anything before really. And so I didn't want to let him down and I, I wanted to do a really good job. Now, the consequence of that was I was too focused on my own stuff and not focused on how do I help my colleagues be successful? Yeah. And so to my colleagues who couldn't see the internal insecurity going on in my head, they just thought I wasn't very collaborative and, and not interested in them. But actually, it wasn't that at all. I would happily have helped them if they'd asked for help, but I was so worried about doing a good job myself that I didn't have time for them. So the generosity thing that I referred to before is about kind of setting your own insecurities and goals aside a bit and actually saving time for looking around and going, how do I help other people be successful? And and just trusting that that's the right thing to do and, and that ultimately they'll help you when you need help as well. And and so I think it took me too long to to figure that out. Okay, you seem to progress a really swiftly
0: there after that.
1: Yeah, well, it was great. Someone pointed that out to me. I, I had a, one of those three sixty degree feedback things, which oh, yeah. is what prompted it. Which is, I had this feedback that I wasn't collaborative, and I was really confused by this and thought, "What do you mean? I'd, I'd never do something against somebody else's interest." And and it it really bothered me. I thought it was unfair, and I thought it was driven by resentment of how I was doing. And then I had a coach who pointed it out to me, and she said, "No, no, it's you know, you're so busy." trying to not screw up that you don't have time for anybody else
0: did you see or sense. do you see brian a lot of high performance
1: what it, do you mean sorry well
0: yeah you you'd mentioned high performance earlier yeah all right and everyone talks about it yeah and here you are getting feedback on a, on a 360 yeah why people maybe not at the same ability as you right and during your career for all the rhetoric out there and the focus do you actually see a lot of high performance
1: i, I think i know what you're getting at um it's True high performance is fairly rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think particularly in large organizations where a lot of people are really driven by just wanting to keep their jobs. And I understand that. That's something I wish I had figured out a bit earlier, actually, is how pernicious that can be in big organizations. Well, small country, where do you go next? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But I don't know if that's limited to an Australian thing. I just think that people, people get to a stage in their career in their late 30s, 40s, They've probably risen about as far as they're going to go. They may or may not realize that. They're probably deep down. They sort of know mm-hmm. that they're coming toward the end of how far they're going to go, but they've got a mortgage. They've got kids in private school. They've got a nice life and their primary goal is to keep that position. And so taking risks, uh, committing to an, to an outcome that you don't know how you're going to achieve that stops being as satisfying or that starts to sound scary. So how do you as
0: a CEO then change that culture? Do you give me the five C's? Yeah. You've engaged engaged with me on one of your direct reports. It's cascading down. You went out and you walked the floor. You're feeling it starting to change. But is it? Or am I going to say yes to you
1: and I'm not going to let anybody take my role? Yeah. Uh, Well, I think in some cases you actually have to be live to that issue and you have to make that decision for people in some cases. Uh, I think if, if I had my time over again, I probably would have been a bit more directive on that. Mm. Um there was there was something we did a couple of years into my time as CEO and it, like most things it was something I stumbled into that turned out to be quite useful but I wouldn't pretend that I totally thought it through in advance where we used to do these things where we would review all of our people I'm sure in your world you know the nine box matrix yeah, thing yeah. right yep. so we would have these reviews twice a year mm-hmm. and you'd have these nine boxes and every time you'd show up there'd be certain people who would always be in the same box in the middle or whatever on this particular occasion, I knew a number of these people, and I had a bit more skepticism about where they were, where they'd been placed. And every time that I had asked about them in the past, the response had been, oh, no, no, they're good. You know, we're working with them. They're improving, da-da-da-da-da. And there's a good excuse as to why we shouldn't move them on. And gut instinct is telling you what? Uh, that they're not up to it. yeah. And so one day, out of frustration of having the same conversation now for 18 months about a couple of people, I said, all right, and it was just something that popped out of my head. I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to change the burden of proof. So in two weeks' time, so I, I've got a list. I, I highlighted a number of people on this list, and I said, in two weeks' time, you're going to come to me in my office, and you're going to explain to me why that person should stay, And you're going to convince me that that person should stay. And if you can't convince me, they go. Instead of me trying to convince you that they should go, you're going to convince me that they should stay. Mm -hmm. And it was remarkable what happened. Couldn't convince you? They Actually, mostly. Came around to it? Mostly they came to me. And I remember one particular executive came to me, poked their head into my door and said, you know, I've been thinking about the person. You're right. They need to go. And it was this thing about changing the burden of proof that, You've got to earn your way into the thing as opposed to us having to convince ourselves that they should go. And that turned out to be a really powerful tool.
0: You're listening to No Limitations with special guest, Brian Hartzer. In our next episode, I sit down with Grant Blackley, Managing Director and CEO of Southern Cross Media Group. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. Brian, the big word out there is collaboration, nonstop. You just mentioned the word directive. Should you have been more directive as the CEO?
1: Yes. And were you getting sucked into collaborating too much? Um, I think I was probably a l- sucked in a bit too much to consensus. I wouldn't overplay it. Yeah, okay. um, I, w- I sort of focused on trying to build consensus as opposed to Collaborate because the CEO, you you know, you are in charge. Ultimately, yeah. But I was—I had a view that we had more time on our hands than I think we did, and so I was trying to move the organization forward without totally disrupting it because I thought there were a lot of really good things happening, and I wanted to keep people on board and take people on a journey. Yep. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, sometimes you don't have as much time as you think, and and so Who, who are you testing that with? What do you mean?
0: Well, your theory there, right? You thought you had more time. Did you have the right people around you saying we don't have the time? Uh, well, we got hit by an asteroid. I know you did. We'll cover <laughs> that in a second, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was during a period where there was the, the, the Royal Commission as well. Yeah,
1: and I think that was another element where a huge amount of my time was soaked up doing things that otherwise I wouldn't have. I mean, one one of my regrets about the Royal Commission is my natural style as i alluded to is to spend a lot of time out in the field yep. um, and I use that word loosely you know going to operation centers and you know I'm because I'm a bit if anything because I'm an ex-management consultant I'm interested in how processes work and I'm interested in all that so I would normally have spent probably 20% of my time out and about yep. and I think if I had been able to do that a lot dark. of things I would have picked up more things yep. that I could have then intervened on yep. the Royal Commission took all that time away and so, a lot of what I normally would have done didn't happen.
0: All right. Let's go back to ANZ for a few minutes. Yeah. You're doing exceptionally well, making reputation retail, consumer, understanding that, that market, probably second to none from what my homework tells me. But Mike Smith comes in, changes the landscape in Australian banking. We haven't seen anything like it. We decide to go offshore. Because if you look at Australian banking now, Brian, it's a domestic play only. mm I don't see where the growth's going to come from. I see a lot of cost-cutting, restructure, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a fight to the death on the same customers coming in. And we don't have immigration, it's going to get worse. Was Mike wrong or was he right?
1: So Mike was right about the importance of Asia. I think that there was a strategic leap which was missed, which was just because Asia is growing, therefore an Australian bank can be profitable in Asia. I think that second part was an assumption okay. that probably didn't stand up to scrutiny. Too fast. More that there's an inherent problem in banking, which is that domestic players have a tremendous advantage. Mm-hmm. And and so if you're gonna be if you're gonna compete in domestic banking, by which I mean normal commercial banking type activities. Yep. It's one thing if you're gonna go in and be an FX trader, yep. for example, you know, perhaps if you're really, really good at that you can have a little niche doing that. That's right. But if you're going to go in and try and do commercial lending or retail banking in somebody else's commercial banking and retail banking market, almost by definition, you're only going to get the customers that the main players don't want. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but that just, I think has become kind of a truism in banking. And so I think that we probably assumed as a bank that we could hang out a shingle and appeal to an emerging affluent segment of customers in Asia and they would just come to us Yeah, right. when actually we didn't have the inherent advantages of large distribution network, trusted brands, deep many decade relationships with customers. Yep. And so you're struggling to pick people off and you end up doing that by competing on price. Correct, which is generally a doomed strategy. Correct. And the other thing that that I think that we missed was that when you actually translate the the absolute number of dollars of money that's available to be made in some of these smaller markets and translate it back into Australian dollars, it ends up not actually adding up to very much. So I think the thematic that, gosh, Asia is a huge thing, that was absolutely right. I think we... We should have spent more time thinking through, well, okay, that may be true, but is there really a pathway to us building a sustainable, profitable business in these countries? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that, in my mind, I, I was given responsibility to look at the retail strategy okay. in Asia yep. and um, did a bunch of work on it. And I have to say, concluded after six months or so of work, this isn't going to work. And it was just because actually the numbers just didn't add up. And you know that turned out to be true. So,
0: where do the four-pillar banks go now?
1: Well, I think it's very difficult. I'm not so much worried about growth generally because banking generally grows with an economy and I think the Australian economy still has a lot of potential left in it. And as immigration comes back, there's inherent growth in the customer base. Yeah, yeah, but
0: base. they rely a lot on immigration.
1: Yeah. But I think that the bigger issue for me is more what regulation has done, which is to dissuade the banks from doing anything unusual, Think it's really of it, vanilla, isn't it? It's very vanilla. The banks yeah. are basically being pushed into becoming big building societies. Correct. And I think that's a real shame. And I think that's to the detriment of Australian consumers. So
0: you pack your bags and go to the UK?
1: I did. I did. What did you think of it? And what did you think of the competition compared to Australia? Uh, more competitive there. In some respects, but the quality of the competition is not necessarily as good. Australian banks are very, very good Mm. at what they do. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? But I genuinely believe it. I mean, I found that we there were there were exceptions to this. But broadly speaking, when I arrived in the UK, the Australian banks were way ahead of where the UK banks were in terms of the quality of service. Yeah, quality of service, quality of the online offering, competitiveness of the products, innovation of the products. Um, but the UK market is huge, and as a consequence, a bit like the US, when you have a huge market, there are more room for niche players, so there's a bit more innovation here and there. Some of that goes well, some of it doesn't go well. But I mean, the circumstances for me was really about a turnaround. So yes. I was at the Royal Bank of Scotland, which yep. was arguably the biggest bank failure in history. Correct. And so my job was to turn around three parts of the business, and that was a lot of fun, actually. What was the learnings from that? Well, uh, several things. I think in terms of why it went wrong. There are certain fundamental principles in banking that are important, I mean, um, RBS blew up through a combination of just basic banking 101 errors, really, uh, combined with a CEO who um, had some real serious psychological hangups, and the Mm -hmm. combination of those things was not good. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what you do about it, we went back to basics, and it was just, you know, why are we here? We are here to look after customers. This is a service business so yes there's all this stuff and yes we have to solve a lot of historical things but let's look after customers let's simplify the products so we can deliver them well let's get the cost base under control and you know just do our job and do it well and rebuild from that and that took a really long time i mean i think arguably probably took 12 years for Mm -hmm. rbs to really turn itself around now Mm -hmm. called natwest um but it did and there was a there was a very good bank embedded in there Um, they just had a lot of things they needed to sort out from years of neglect and then you get the phone call to come back to australia yeah well um it's a little more subtle than that my um my marriage had broken up shortly after i went to the uk and so i was always looking for a way to come home you had four kids yeah yeah and um and I suspect that I knew Gail from Gail Kelly from before, yeah. and I suspect Gail heard about my situation. Yeah. So she ragged me up and said, what are you up to? And I said, trying to figure out how to get home. <laughs> and she said, well, I might have an idea for you. And so that was that. So she creates a role for you? Yeah. Okay. Gail calls it a day.
0: Yes. You get the nod? Yes. Did you want the job? I did.
1: Were you ready for the job? I think I was, actually. What was the mandate for the job? Um. The way that we talked about it was that banking was about to go through the biggest change in a generation, if not certainly 20 years, and that we were going to need to reshape the bank to be a winner out of that, or else we were going to get run over. Hadn- and Hadn't Gail tried that earlier? Gail mm-hmm. had been responding to a slightly different situation. What was accelerating toward the end of Gail's time was regulatory intervention, the uh, Digital disruption in particular. So we we talked about kind of the the new rules of banking um, and the new expectations of customers. And so it was really about we're going to need to reshape the company to be a service business that has a thin layer of very high tech capability supporting it. So dramatic transformation of the cost base using technology, but maintaining a really strong human face Um, at the front end. And recognizing we're going to have to dramatically simplify products and address past practices, simplify the way customers are looked at, so that um, we deal with all the regulatory, uh, heightened regulatory expectations. And so that was really my mandate was, um, and in my, if you like, my pitch for the job, it was, I think we're about to go through an extraordinary period. I think Westpac can be a winner out of that. But we're going to have to make Some pretty fundamental changes in the way we run the company and that's not going to happen overnight. In your mind, if you're going to look forward
0: and one day walk out leaving a legacy behind, when you sat there and thought about it, what was Westpac going to look like from the day you walked out?
1: Very strong branded business with a reputation for being one of the great service companies of the world, supported by incredible modern technology that meant that our cost base was incredibly competitive. So you get to this positive spiral of, people really love the brand, they love the people, they love the service, and our cost base is so efficient because of the way we use technology that we can generate really good margins, reinvest them and grow faster than anybody else. That was the idea. So
0: for all those out there listening again, you've just been made CEO, how do you go about
1: it? Is it? Do you run by the 30, 60, 90 day, 180 day? How do you do it, Brian? Well, in that, I had had quite a lot of time to prepare, so yeah. we had a plan ready to go. Yep. Um, and the uh, the thing that, um, <laughs> timing is everything, shortly after I started, the regulators changed the rules around capital. So we right after I started, I suddenly had to do a capital raising, which threw a bit of a spanner into the works. And then we faced- Was anybody it. anticipating that? Um, not to that extent. No. Oh. There were just endless changes to the way the portfolio was being assessed for how much capital that you had to have. Yeah. Um, and because of the structure of Westpac's balance sheet, we were more, as we had a very strong, affluent mortgage customer base. Yep. And the regulators and some of the banking analysts convinced themselves that investment property loans were bad news and that interest only loans were bad news. Mm-hmm. Now, our view was, and frankly, mine continues to be, mm-hmm. they were actually very good news because yeah. it meant we had a lot of affluent customers and Absolutely. they were fine. I always said they're going to be fine and they were fine. And they've always been fine. But the regulators got themselves in a tiz over this mm-hmm. and so went, oh my gosh, you have to hold more capital for those. And so then that turned into a downward spiral with the analysts freaking out about the mix of our book. Anyway, I mean, other people have a different view on that, but that. that that continues to be my view. Hmm. But sorry, back to your question. In all the other jobs I went into, I did use a sort of 90 day plan framework, is which it? I found really helpful. And simplistically, I did it at RBS, did it at ANZ. And essentially, what I would do is, well, I'll talk about it in two ways. First 30 days is just meet people and ask questions, don't make any decisions, just get as much as you can a 360 degree view of the situation. So I would talk to, obviously, direct reports, peers internal people, outside people, suppliers, consultants, analysts, frontline people, customers, you know, every different perspective I could and mm-hmm. try and get an understanding of the organization is, and what its issues were. Mm-hmm. Second 30 days was essentially about planning and I would involve my team in what I called a brutal reality session, okay. which is where we, uh, we'd spend half a day looking at the business through a whole bunch of different lenses of data. So, How's our operational performance? How's our financial performance? What are customers saying? What's our market share? Uh, And so on. Risk performance. And then in that way, the whole management team has a consistent set of facts to think about where we're at. And then we would use the second part of the day and say, okay, what are the priorities? So having now that we all have all the same information and perspective on the business, what should our priorities be? What should our goal overall goal be? How are you doing this, Brian? Is this a consensus play again, or is this a more direct? How do you do um, this one? I suppose it's a consensus so This is your thing. vision, isn't it? It is, but I like to – so in the end, I would make the decisions, yeah. but I found it was really helpful to get the senior people bought into and feeling a sense of ownership of the agenda yeah. because down the road, they needed to be supportive of it. And that's yeah. part of how I deal with the politics and the – collaboration piece is we've all agreed this is what we're doing yep right so therefore we've all agreed so that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. it wasn't like it was a democracy but i wanted to bring people on the journey um of that and um so do that and then the third 30 days if you like is okay how we can execute this Mm -hmm. and then you get to the end of 90 days and it's okay it's go so we've now got a full on plan of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and if we need to make organizational changes or the right the uh, other things like that then we do that at the end of that. So I found that to be pretty effective. One other thing that I often did which people might find interesting is I would in advance of going into a job I would write to or very early on I would write to a large cross section of the organization. Okay. And I would send them an actual physical letter which not many people do anymore yeah. that I would personally sign. Yeah. And the letter would say, I would really like you to write me a letter with the answers to five questions, which is what's going well that we need to keep? What's not going well that we need to change? What do you most hope that I will do? What are you most afraid that I might do? And have you got any other advice for me? And so I'd I'd send them that letter and I would then get back, I'd send 250 of these letters out. And so I would then get back these piles of letters from people at all different levels of the organization that I've chosen. And uh, I'd read them all. And very quickly, you get a sense of what the issues are. You also get a sense as to who are some of the standout people that maybe you haven't met yet. Um, You also get a sense of who are the people that are just, you know, kind of phoning it in. And so it's quite helpful in that sense.
0: I guess you also find out the answers lie within too, don't they? Generally. In
1: many cases. Generally, people know.
0: Yeah. What was your greatest fear then? Oh, golly. Like you said, you're worried about technology moving at pace?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know what my greatest fear was. I guess ability to make change happen in a big, complex environment. Banks are incredibly complex. The technology platforms are incredibly complex. There's a lot of constraints on what you can actually do. And you're running on legacy systems. Yeah, all that. Yeah, so can we actually get this done? I suppose would would have been my biggest fear.
0: And success then, you mentioned a minute ago that legacy when, when you walk out the door, but did that mean beating Commonwealth Bank in your mind?
1: Uh, like- in my mind, it meant establishing us as the second big player alongside Commonwealth Bank. I thought we could we could probably complement them in the marketplace. They had a historically more of a down market customer base, and yes. I thought we could probably establish more of an affluent market positioning. So were you on track? Uh, I think so. I do. A lot of the things that we were doing were, were taking us in the right right direction. Things were working. But, you know, it's easy to say now. I mean, it's a lot of things have changed as a consequence of, of what went on.
0: All right. Royal Commission comes. Yeah. Not easy. No. And a number of your competitors lost their CEOs during that process. Mm-hmm.
1: What were you thinking? Um, and how necessary was it, do you think? I don't think it was necessary. Okay. Um, it was a political stunt. Bill Shorten was trying to embarrass Malcolm Turnbull, trying to accuse him of being in the pocket of the big end of town. Yep. And so calling for a Royal Commission was a classic political wedge move that if he defends us, he's showing that he's in the pocket of the big banks and yep. if he agrees to do it, then Bill Shorten was right. Yep. You know, so and a Royal Commission doesn't really ever bring good news. It's only ever going to bring bad no, news. No, And I think value has come out of it, so let me say that first. But I'll, the, the other thing I would say is my objection to a Royal Commission early on was on the basis that, okay, based on what people are saying the issues are, mm-hmm. every single one of those issues is already covered by an existing regulation and an existing regulator, so, actually, if you want to apply logic to this, the only thing that should have a Royal Commission is why the regulators aren't doing their job. It's a fair point. Right? That was that was my view. Yep. So, it's not that I'm saying there aren't issues. I'm saying, sure, there are issues, but guess what? There's already a rule, and there's already somebody's whose job is to enforce that rule. Well, so same to the casino, we can talk about now, right? right? Yeah. Yep. But, you know, the Royal Commission has great appeal for politicians. Yep. So, there we are. And and I think... um, with, and, the, and the banks with, are great targets, right? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And the other thing I would say is that... Most of the things that came out of the Banking Royal Commission were nothing to do with banking. It was mostly about financial planning, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the consumers have benefited in Australia as a consequence of that, because essentially what's happened is a lot of financial planners have gotten out of the industry and it's yeah. become incredibly expensive Absolutely. for people to get financial advice, which I think is unfortunate.
0: You're watching what was happening from the competitors. The revs getting moved on. Nad changing their CEO and chair. What were you thinking?
1: Well, it, look. Let me focus on the genuine good lesson that came out of it. Okay. Which is that we were, or certainly I was comforting myself on the fact that the percentage of customers that were complaining in a year mm-hmm. was very small. Like literally less than half of 1% of customers were complaining in a year. Okay. And so I used to look at that figure because I, I used to ask people, how what percent of people complaining in a year would be a good result? And people would say, oh, maybe 5%. And I'd say, well, what about 1%? And they'd say, that'd be good. Yeah. I'd say, what about 0.5%? They'd say, oh, that'd be very good. And I'd say, what about less than that? And that'd be amazing. And good because that's the number. But there was a problem with that. There was a logical problem with that. And that was that within that tiny percentage, there was an even tinier percentage of really, really bad cases. Yep. And the issue was those really, really bad cases were not bubbling up. And they were stuck in the system and we weren't seeing them and and therefore we weren't addressing them. And so what the Royal Commission did was it highlighted that buried in uh, for typically a bunch of a comedy of errors, combination of the customer didn't do things quite right or had an issue. The people they dealt with weren't sympathetic enough. Someone wasn't reporting things up properly or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But for a variety of reasons, people were stuck in the system and some really bad outcomes happened. And we failed to pick that up. And so what we did do as a consequence of this whole experience was we changed the way that we managed complaints to be much more proactively diving in and going, you know, what's in there that that we don't feel good about that we need to fix? And I think there's a much better process in place now so that people can't get stuck in the system. You know, I regret that it took us so long to figure that out. Was the whole thing hijacked by the journos as well, Brian? Well, I mean, it's good story good, sto- good stories isn't it yeah and 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 journalism loves to personalize things, mm. you know, so that's just life, okay, then then you had the bad day come come your way, yes, a lot of numbers came up was it twenty seven million uh something like that, yeah, okay, what happened there then so there were essentially two things that happened, the main one, which is the one that has the big numbers associated with it, yeah, was there was a technical error back in 2009 yep. where the regulations changed so that the bank was meant to be – in simple language – the bank was meant to be sending a copy of every cross-border payment transaction yep. to the regulator, right, Okay. every transaction. And Westpac had a system of correspondent relationships with a number of large banks overseas whereby those banks would send a file to Westpac for us to pay – domestic customers. So the classic example of this was say a German insurance company has pension payments that are going out to people who live in Australia. Right, okay. And rather than them sending an expensive cross-border payment, yep. they would bundle those up through say a Citibank. Yep. Citibank would send a file. Yep. and then Westpac would take that file and stick it into the payment system and, and make a bunch it. and distribute it. Yep. We were, under the regulation, meant to be providing a copy of every one of those transactions to the regulator. Right. And through a comedy of errors, a combination of a technical glitch and a team quitting and moving to another bank, and then not having a proper handover of the project when that happened. Yep. All of that happened at the time when this new thing was meant to come in, and so it didn't get done. And so over a period of years, these payments continue to be processed, but not getting but they but the copy of the transactions wasn't being sent and you weren't the only bank uh well this uh yeah, well every bank had that responsibility westpac had a particular process of these deals where the banks would s- it was a specific correspondent relationship that okay. we had which i think was sort of particular to us okay and so i mean any money laundering is an incredibly complex issue in my first month as ceo i called for a meeting with the head of Austrac handed him my business card, wrote my mobile phone number on it and said, I wanted you to hear from me that this is a really important issue. And if you ever have any concerns about Westpac, please call that number and I will fix it. So we knew because A and Z had had AML issues back in the 2000s. So yep. I knew and at RBS, I knew how important AML stuff was. Yep. Okay. And so a couple years later, we were still having issues fixing all of our various compliance things. We hired someone out of J.P. Morgan in Asia who, among other things, had run the AML program for J.P. Morgan in Asia, and that was part of the appeal of why we hired her. And I said to her, you know, I want you to go through the place, and if there's anything in here, find it, and let's fix it. And she came back to me a few months later and said, we found this thing. Right. And it's been going on for a really long time. And said, okay, well, that's terrible. So we rang. um, We Oztrak. Declared to track. Yep. I personally, the, that day I personally rang the head of Oztrak, said, we found this thing. I'm really sorry. Um, it's been going on a long time. We will fix it and we'll take what's coming to us. And she said, you know, thank you very much and, you know, we'll, I we'll appreciate it and we'll work with you. And so they, they then worked with us over a year to try to get to the bottom of what had happened. Yeah. And in the course of that, they found another thing, which was about our operations people not processing suspicious customers fast enough. Yeah. And so what ended up happening when it all came out was conflating those two things. They were two totally different issues. Yeah, right, okay. And the, the big number issue, I mean, my contention is, based on the data that I saw at the time, that, that not passing those transactions was definitely a, a technical violation of the rules. Yep. But I still don't believe there was any... Any money laundering or any nefarious stuff going on in any of those transactions, as yeah, far okay. as I know, it just wasn't um, the paper. It, wasn't it just, shifted across. It, it, was, it was a technical breach. It was a breach. I'm not saying it wasn't, yeah, okay. but the problem was the number was enormous. And according to the, to the the rules, if you cheat every transaction as a breach, the potential fines are astronomical. I saw that, yes. Yeah. So that's what happened, and the potential size of the fine. Spooked the politicians, spooked the super funds. They did, they did, and it was yeah. a great opportunity to stick the boot into us. Yeah, and both, both sides. Both sides. Yeah, and uh, and so they did. And the super funds decided they wanted a circuit breaker, and that turned out to be the chairman, myself, and the head of the risk committee.
0: So, what do you think, Brian? Could you have turned it around? From what I've read, you, you were pretty clear saying I I really want to turn this around. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, you,
1: and you focused on it. But my view was and continues to be that i was probably the perfect person to fix it um i knew the organization i was committed to the issue i had the experience to drive change and get to the bottom of it i went out to the operations center the day that it all went public when i first heard about it and met with the team out there and said explain this to me and they took me through it and i said well why are we doing that i I found one of the solutions that day myself now my regret is that the executive's closer to it why didn't they pick that up a bit earlier yeah. so I, I think i could have absolutely fixed it but you know sometimes these things just get out of control and people want to scapegoat and you know I, I think the unfortunate thing and obviously i'm biased in this but i think the unfortunate thing is that accountability seems to have been interpreted to mean who do we shoot when something goes wrong yeah as opposed well, there, to there, there was a need for a scalp wasn't there yeah um and as opposed to What's the root of this and um, who, who is, in my mind, accountability should be something that you seek, which is, you know, put me in coach, you know, give me the accountability to go and fix this. Had you moved quick
0: enough during the time with Ostrak Like if, they, if you're having all those communications, did you say a second thing
1: happened? We were fairly blindsided by the second thing. Yeah, we? Yeah. The first I heard of it was maybe, the first I heard they were even looking at that as an issue was maybe a month, six weeks earlier. Right. And and at that point, I knew nothing about exactly what they were alleging we had done. Yeah, right. So we didn't find out the details of what they were alleging until like the Friday before they sued us, and and it was at that point it was like a bombshell. Was like what they're saying we did what? You know, are you kidding? Like why wouldn't I would have fixed that in a nanosecond if I'd known about it? That, that's one of my. If I'm grumpy about it, it's so. What are they just after some headlines? <laughs> uh, it's probably or? not. No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe. Uh, I mean, there is an element in regulators where they like to make a – they like to make a big they public thing. We well, have to be seen to be doing it, don't they? Well, they like to do it because they think that it dissuades other people from. Yep. But the notion that the banks aren't trying to, or certainly when I was there, the notion that we weren't trying to fix AML issues is ridiculous. Mm. We we spent so much money and time on this issue. Now we didn't get it right. Totally acknowledge that. But okay. but to the extent that that we weren't focusing – I mean, we were very focused on it. Of course. Why wouldn't you be? Why would you know? I mean. Anyway, so. Uh, I just think um, – I think there's a there's a challenge with Austrac, which is it's it's kind of a policing agency, unlike a APRA, which is more of a prudential regulator. And so their willingness to give inform- – information tends to only flow one way mm-hmm. with Austrac, yeah. which I think is unfortunate because, you know, they had a very willing partner to try to resolve any of the issues they were worried about. What's going
0: through your mind then as the CEO? No, it's it's coming all pretty quick. Mm. Obviously, there's confidential discussions having left, right, and center.
1: What was going through your mind? Just get to the bottom of it, fix it, deal with it, take it on the chin. Um, I knew from the literally the day that I was offered the job that I would face challenges in the role. You have to. Yeah. That just goes with the territory. And that's why you asked me a while back, was I prepared? I think I was prepared because I knew what I was getting into.
0: Yeah. And what did you do? You gave the card early days to Oysetrack anyway, right?
1: Yeah. And that that's an example of that. Yeah. So- um, I always knew that in these big roles, there's the potential that things come out of the woodwork and you're ultimately on the hook for everything that goes on, even though you don't know everything that goes on. But that's why you get paid the danger money, I guess, isn't it? In theory. Well, not a lot of the danger money goes away these days. It does. what did you learn about people afterwards?
0: Was it radio silence for you or were, were people kind Oh, you
1: mean after I left? Yeah. I learned that all the cliches are true. Yeah, really? They're all true. All those good friends of yours not suddenly go missing, did they? It's all true. You find you absolutely find out who your friends are. How'd you go personally? Uh, I was okay. I mean, it was it was hard. Yeah, it, would um, be. it was a sh- bit of a shock, but I had always I had prepared for it in a way in that I always knew it was possible. I had always worked really hard to separate how I felt about myself from how I felt about the role, because I knew there was a level of randomness. So my mantra is all I can do is all I can do, and it'll be what it'll be. And I'm not going to allow my identity to be totally tied up in being this role because I can't control that, um, as we found. You know, I have a great family. I have a fabulous wife, um, incredibly supportive. And I also spent a lot of time – not a lot of time, but I had this running list in my head of things to do when I get fired. Um, I used to joke about it with people.
0: Well, Churchill got fired, don't forget. Yeah, yeah. And
1: so I always tried to make sure that I had more in my life, at least things that I wanted to do. Other than just be this role, you know, I, I wish it hadn't ended, and I wish yeah. I could have had a few more years. And you know, I, I loved it; it was an, it was a wonderful privilege to be able to do it. But I always knew that it would end one day, and that.
0: What was your plan then, Brian? If if,
1: if how long do you think you were going to be there for? I would have liked probably another three years, yeah, three four years to see through the the changes that I was driving. You know, and then from there, dunno. What do you reckon the biggest changes you achieved were at the bank? A couple of things. I I think I embedded the concept that we're a service business and not a product business. That might sound like a simple statement, but it's it's a a big part of why banks ended up in the difficulties that they did is because they got seduced with the idea that they were product companies. Whereas I like to say that in my whole bank career, I've yet to meet someone who told me their lifelong ambition was to own a mortgage. Very true. Right? You know, banks are enablers of other things people want to do, and they do well when they help people achieve those things. And that's a noble thing to do, because if you do it well, you help the economy grow, you Absolutely. help people be successful. You know, that's that's a good thing. So I think that I was able to embed a real service mindset among mm-hmm. uh, the culture of the place that, that has sustained. And I think we put in train some really important changes in technology that are enabling Westpac to be very competitive. The online banking service is fantastic. And a lot of those things are things that we kicked off. There's some fundamental infrastructure things that we did that also are important enablers. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that. I would have liked us to have strengthened our, our market position in a couple of areas, but, um, uh, you know, I think we made made some good progress. Also, I think we made a lot of progress on on leadership and leadership development, yep. which is something I'm quite proud of. Yeah. Well, like I said to you earlier today, I ran into someone just recently about your equilibrium yeah, program, yeah, I'm quite
0: which tr- was groundbreaking. Yeah. I'm quite proud of that. Brian, if you look back, which is what you just said a few minutes ago, bearing in mind that's happening in the bowels of the bank, right? And you're the CEO, you've got a thousand things happening. Is there anything you could have done earlier which would have changed that outcome or not? Is um, it a cultural thing, Brian? You know, you know, you know, the papers come slamming at you, right? Yeah. Culture, culture, culture. Not good at the bank, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, let's face it. Every Australian's going to beat a bank up. That's pretty pretty normal. We were born to despise banks. That's pretty
1: much the DNA. So, what what could have been done, right? So, I think there's two things. I think with the benefit of hindsight, there are probably some relatively senior people that, in my heart of hearts, I didn't think were up to it. That I probably should have moved on. The greatest regret they all have. Yeah, it's yeah, okay. a common one. I'm sure you've heard it a yeah, few times. Yes, absolutely. Um, because I think things do cascade from that. Interesting. The other thing was that we became – and I, I saw this and I pr- – with a benef- – if I had my time over again, I would have been harder at the ball on this. The focus on process over outcomes. So the consequence of all the regulatory intervention yeah. was the banks uh, – certainly our bank, but I think this is pretty common – Banks developed immense amount of process to try to comply with all these, this blizzard of regulation. Yep. yep. And I think people just get exhausted and yep. they just start ticking boxes and not looking at the actual outcome and going, wait a minute, mm. that just doesn't make sense. Mm. And what are we doing about that? Mm-hmm. And I think people, people just got overwhelmed with process. And so I think More intervention of forget the process. What's the outcome telling us, and and what do we need to do about it? And trying to build a culture more around that would be something I'd try and do. So, what's the state of leadership
0: in business in Australia today? Because what you're talking about, it's everything we we hear day in day out regarding the governance process, board focus, risk being limited somewhat, or risk taking has been limited somewhat. In fact, flip the other way, is there any risk being taken? Mm. Um, where's the growth going to come? What, what are you seeing, Brian?
1: I, I would observe, and it's not, I'm not alone in this observation, that public companies in Australia have a real challenge because of the expectations on boards and board composition and the incredible amount of rules and regulations that go around executives. I, I think it's it's really dissuading a lot of good people from wanting to be in the public company sector, Mm -hmm. and so I think that's an unfortunate consequence. So how do you circuit break it? Everyone's saying it. We all know that, right? Mm -hmm. So how's it going to change? I can't quite see how it changes until perhaps... I mean, the regulators are responding to calls from the politicians who are responding to calls from the media. Yep. So so until there's some sort of public desire for better performance and the priorities shift a bit, I don't see how it changes.
0: 5Cs, engagement. One of the things I'm going to ask you about, remuneration,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: bonuses. Now, if you look at the performance of the banks, which I'm sure you do, are you impressed by the performance of the banks in terms of dividend, terms of capital growth in my share? And the only reason I ask that, we are talking about earlier about leadership and it's forever being told we're compensating our people, we're aligned to performance, shareholder value. Well, if it's shareholder value and my shares aren't going up in both capital growth or in dividend return, why are these senior execs in the banks getting paid enormous
1: bonuses for not delivering to me? Yeah. Well, I think that there's two parts of the answer to that question that I would offer, recognizing that lots of people are not going to share my views on things. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that is worth bearing in mind is how much the rules have changed for banks over the last 10 years. Okay which has had a dramatic effect on shareholder value and shareholder returns. So unlike a lot of businesses that are a bit simpler where you have revenue minus cost equals profit, in banks, you have this extra bit, which is how much capital do you need to hold and the rules around that. Mm -hmm. And there have been dramatic, dramatic recalculations of how much capital you need to hold for various types of loans. Seems
0: excessive, doesn't
1: it? And as a consequence, the return on equity has fallen dramatically because the banks have to hold a lot more capital and because they have to hold more capital, they've had to cut their dividends to build their capital to meet the new rules. So that is not the fault of the bank leaders. That is, that is a fact of regulators changing their mind on things. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to assess the performance of, of the leaders of the different banks, mm-hmm. you need to kind of bear that, bear that in mind. Okay. I guess that would be part of it. Um, I think the other thing is that running a bank in, in the modern world is incredibly complex. The expectations from all these different stakeholder groups are really, really high. Um, but the products are coming more vanilla, aren't they? They are. But the challenges of what you actually have to do all day, day to day, in senior management to meet regulatory expectations, to meet changes in technology, to deal with cybersecurity risks, yeah. uh, It is it is a really hard job. And you want to be able to attract high-quality people, and you need to be able to retain high-quality people. Now, people are going to come to different views on the level of compensation of those. I, what I can say is, compared to what the caliber of those executives could earn in other markets,
0: oh, global markets, without a doubt.
1: And people are okay with that because it's Australia's a nice place to live. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't have to be the same, but I think uh, I just think you be careful what you ask for.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Onslaught of technology. You're across that now, you're moving into that space. What do you see changing in the landscape for the banking payment system, et cetera?
1: Well, what's happening is uh, technology is becoming much more componentized and and common and modernized in, in a way that historically banks built a lot of custom technology. Yep. Nowadays, you can buy and plug together a lot of things. So as an example, one of the businesses I'm involved with, To Be, which is this home equity lending startup, we built our entire lending platform, origination platform, for under a million dollars. And we did that by finding an existing platform we could customize and plugging a bunch of existing services together that we could rent. We couldn't have even scoped the project for that in a big bank Mm. because of the complexity. So I think there is this dramatic change in what's possible and how easy it is. And so that standardization of technology and the availability of cloud-based components means that cost of delivering technology is coming down, Mm -hmm. making it much easier for new people to innovate and compete. And I think ultimately that's really good for consumers. Oh yeah, crypto. I think there's something in it, but I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is good evidence that the there's US. a lot of flim-flam going on in that world. I think blockchain, the notion of using a ledger to store ownership of assets is really interesting, and I think there will continue to be interesting ways to do that. Yeah, although we saw an interesting announcement yesterday over
0: the last couple of days of the ASX.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, they probably got ahead of themselves. It's still complicated, and, and um, there are some real technical barriers to making – a blockchain-based world meet the high frequency, speed, reliability requirements of the modern financial system. And so I think maybe people have underestimated that. But in general, the notion over time of using smart contracts and those sorts of things, I think there is something in that. And, okay. and I think it, it it's worth continuing to look at. But I mean, the idea of people speculating on the value of these cryptocurrencies or nfts on yep. a picture of a monkey i mean good luck i think it has a lot of elements of a pyramid scheme
0: yeah agreed so in the last oh, six 12 months all we read about cyber 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 and particularly in the last couple of months yeah. it's not gonna go away is it
1: no no it's and, very you're, not gonna, and
0: you're not gonna beat them either are you
1: well, I do think over time there will be new solutions, particularly as uh, there's standardization of identification through biometrics and, and other sorts of things that protections will get better. They're
0: all beatable, aren't they? they um, said, you know, aren't well, the hackers I, I going to get in? I suppose it's easy to say that,
1: it's easy to say that well, what do you for a period by, of time. Bearing in mind I, I the investment
0: uh, some of these countries well, are putting in.
1: Well, I think over time you can protect systems pretty well. I mean, we spent a lot of time on that at the bank and uh, a lot of money on it. And I ended up being reasonably confident about the security that we had, which doesn't mean that there aren't always going to be some vulnerabilities. There are. But so what happens,
0: think- Brian? What happens if you're a CEO of Westpac Yeah, and you got hacked mm. and you get the other uh, ransom comes in, pay or we're going to start releasing everyone's records. Mm. What would you do? I wouldn't pay. You wouldn't pay? No. No way? No. Do not reckon the board would think about it?
1: i think about it, but wouldn't my recommendation it? would be not to pay.
0: Okay. All right so you don't pay, then you deserve to get moved on? Or am I looking at how you reacted through crisis management? Is that what I should be
1: focused on now
0: and when evaluating well, performance?
1: I think so. Yeah. I, I think that you get better at management when you go through difficult times. Um, and if people have proven themselves to be good at managing crises, then I think that's someone you want because you're always going to have these sort of things. But, but equally- Sometimes the political and media environment gets away from you.
0: It's part of the management, but right, isn't it? What do you mean? Well, you should be managing the part of your process, should you not? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not but saying, I'm not, I, I, absolutely. I, I appreciate the fact that you may well get hacked. That, you can't stop that. And I don't yeah. think a CEO needs to get rolled on that. Yeah. But the performance are after, in presenting your arguments and oh, engaging yeah. oh, it just be your absolutely. discussion.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But that's, that's what doesn't... I'm looking at, aren't I? Sure. But um, I mean, sometimes. I don't know. I guess it's a slightly unanswerable question. Whether is there anybody in some cases, if if the politicians or the media decide to really go after somebody, yeah, you know, I'm just not sure. Is it how realistic it is to expect them to be able to stop that?
0: All right, politicians, or politics and business. Where do you think we are in Australia here? You look at tax reform. Yeah. Yeah, you know, look what look what's happening up in Singapore. They're super smart. They're getting great organisations coming to their country. We look at immigration issues. We're sitting here in this country. We're half asleep at the wheel in doing that. You've got problems regarding the cost of energy, the debates on it. Has business stepped up enough in your view? Uh, we One of my questions. And secondly, if business has stepped up, is government engaging well enough?
1: I do think there's a long way to go still for government and businesses to be able to work together for the collective good. And um, you know, I think, I think it's actually better than it was. Um, I think under the previous administration, there was a lot of suspicion of large business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I think the current administration is, seems to be trying to deal with that more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but politicians have pressures on them as well. And it's, you know, they're always worried, understandably about being accused of being in the pocket of big business. Brian, are we in for a recession? Ah, uh, gosh, I don't think so, but I think it'll be close. And the reason I don't, I think, I think we we could be, but I suspect that the government has enough financial horsepower if they need it.
0: Do they? To enough leverage? That's I they think did. they do. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah. I mean, the the mining royalties have been very good to the to the government balance sheet, and so I think that the government will, if necessary, spend a lot of money to try to see off a recession. That's my personal hunch. But there are certainly real challenges. The Consumer sentiment, the forward, the leading indicators are not good. Inflation is very high. Yeah. People are going to cut back on discretionary spending. Um, the early indications for Christmas don't look so good. So you know, I think it's very hard to sustain a strong economy without the consumers being willing to spend. And I think people are starting to feel the pinch. More broadly, Brian, on leadership on the international stage,
0: maybe starting at um, your old backyard, the U.S. Democrats just retained the Senate. Were you surprised by that?
1: Yeah, I, w- I think that was a, a surprise and a pleasant surprise. I'm I'm pretty dismayed at the way the the previous president behaves, and and I think some of the um, the policies of the the so-called Republican Party really concern me as someone who historically was a Republican. Yeah. Um. I just I think it's there's a bit too much lunatic fringe going on, and I think it's really unfortunate. And people aren't focused on good solutions that deal with the real issues for the, for the country. Country's divided. Yeah, it is. I think it's very unfortunate.
0: Has they lost their way on the world stage?
1: Well, I, I think that President Biden's done a good job in supporting the Ukraine. I think that's been a real bright light in terms of showing that principles matter and that commitment to standing up and supporting Ukraine, I think has been a, a bright light in, in all of this. I think it's a, it's a very scary situation and it's good that certain principles are still held dear. Why should I read your book, Brian? Well, it's the book I wish I had had when I was starting out managing people. And I think it, it gives people a practical way to think about uh, building engagement, which is one of the important elements of leadership. And I think for established leaders, it gives them a framework to understand if, if engagement's not where you want it to be, why is that? And what are the things you might do to, to make a difference? And how can you build that into your normal operating rhythm in a way that makes your business more effective? Have you had much feedback on the book? I have, yeah. It's been. I've had lots of great feedback. People found it really helpful, which has been nice.
0: Brian, if you're looking back at that young man going to Princeton,
1: what advice would you give him now? I would say, continue to be generous with people and and interested in other people's success, and don't worry so much about your own success. That'll look after itself. Work hard, but be interested in other people and uh, and help other people, and th- that'll pay great dividends. On that, Brian, thanks very much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for your time. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to No Limitations.